0: I love these two readings that we've, we've had, and especially when we're thinking about uh, our, our series on science and faith on, on creation. Some of those words in Psalm 8, Lord, you have set your glory above the heavens. I just find that so inspiring uh, to think of the amazing universe that we actually don't know how big it is, and yet God's glory is above and through that. But then we go to where the psalmist says, through the praise of children and infants, you are being praised. And so we go from this that is so huge to some of the tiniest people that are in our uh, congregation this morning. And all of this is about God's creation. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them? And yet, we have a task to do, actually, according to this psalm. We are the people who are there to look after this creation. And so, the whole issue of environment and uh, our responsibility is actually there uh, in the teaching of the Old Testament. And then, when we came to the New Testament reading, uh, Paul is speaking to a a group of people who uh, actually had many different views and philosophies and liked to debate uh, these people in Athens. And where does he take He takes them to God who made the world and everything in it and who doesn't live in temples, who's not confined, who's not just there in the religious bits of life but is in everything Uh, and he makes them aware uh, of how God is at work. And he tells the story of human beings, nations and the boundaries that are marked out uh, by nations in history. It's, it's amazing to me uh, that so much is, is there that is relevant uh, to us today. So that story that Paul told is one story. We've got another story that we're going to, I'm going to briefly tell uh, this morning, and this is the story of some of the people who have wrestled with this whole issue of science and faith. I'm not going to tell the whole story, just highlight one or two people. Uh, and uh, we begin with uh, Copernicus back in the 16th century, uh, who was uh, a Polish uh, Catholic administrator, but also a scientist. And he overturned a lot of the previous thinking uh, about the earth being at the center of things. Uh, and uh, some of this thinking was a little bit challenging uh, to people in terms of their interpretation of the Bible. They said, oh, well, the sun rises. That's what we read but he said, well, it's not exactly like that if you look at it scientifically. Uh, And uh, he uh, was somebody who is very, very important in the story of science. But there is a little bit of a myth around which says, well, the church really didn't like at all what Copernicus was saying, and he was frightened uh, to publish his ideas. Actually, It's almost the opposite of that. He was frightened a little bit of other scientists, what they would say, not of the church. And the church leaders actually encouraged him at the time to publish his book. And he saw his work as a spiritual work. That's Copernicus. Of course, he was in the Catholic stream. There's another stream uh, of uh, the church which we call the Protestant stream. And here's a quotation uh, from John Calvin, one of the great thinkers in the story of the Protestant church back Uh, in the 16th century. So we'll read this. Calvin said, there are innumerable evidences both in heaven and on earth that declare God's wonderful wisdom. Of course, there is need of art and of more exacting toil in order to investigate the motion of the stars, to determine their assigned stations, to measure their intervals, to note their properties. As God's providence shows itself more explicitly when one observes these, so the mind must rise to a somewhat higher level to look upon God's glory. I love that quotation. Here's a theologian, a thinker of the church, saying, let's get into this. It's important. It's wonderful. Let's uh, engage with it. There's a myth about Calvin. There's a myth which says this, that Calvin actually said at one point, who will place the authority of Copernicus above that of the Holy Spirit? In other words, this quotation from Calvin seemed to be saying, Calvin said, don't worry about Copernicus, he's probably wrong. Uh, And this is quoted in many books. Now, the rather striking thing about this is that Calvin never said it. Uh, And this is where myths grow up. Somebody said that he said it, and then everybody else quoted the person who said that he said it. But actually, he never said it. Uh, So, there's a myth about science and Christianity being opposed to one another, which has grown up over the centuries, and particularly in recent years, uh, which is not actually, in many cases, true. Now we come uh, to someone who... Uh, oh, there's, there's Calvin doing his stuff, uh, uh, working away. And um, then we come to Galileo. And as you know, Galileo was another hugely important figure uh, in terms of what he wrote about uh, the, uh, the Copernican theory, which he advocated. And this is something that... Uh, Galileo said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endued us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. We're supposed to use them. He would not require us to deny sense and reason in physical matters which are set before our eyes and minds by direct experience or necessary demonstrations. I would say here something that was heard from a churchman, an eminent churchman. That the intention of the Holy Ghost is to teach us how one goes to heaven, not how heaven goes. That is, we are to be taught about the the meaning of life and how we live our lives and how we prepare uh, for meeting God. The, The scriptures themselves are not to be used as a scientific textbook. That's to misuse the scripture. That's what Galileo was saying. Now, Galileo actually was supported by the Pope of the time. Uh, But Galileo was not somebody who knew how to win friends and influence people, Uh, and uh, so he was eventually uh, condemned and was put under house arrest. The myth is that the church was really totally opposed to everything that he was saying and that he was tortured. You can read this in books, which is not true. So it's a complicated story with Galileo, but it's certainly not a matter of Christianity and science being at war. Now, let's go to Isaac Newton, and uh, we all know uh, where we can go in Cambridge to see the tree. That is probably uh, at least a relative of uh, Newton's tree. Uh, And uh, Newton did an amazing amount of work in terms of uh, the laws of gravitation, of motion, of calculus, etc., a preeminent scientist, who was also a devout believer. And Newton often said that his interest in theology surpassed his interest in science. They weren't in conflict in his view at all. And he famously ended his book, The Principles, with this statement, which again I love. He says, This most beautiful system of sun and planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over the world. And on account of his rule, he is to be called Lord God. That's a good one, isn't it? Uh, That here's somebody who is a towering figure in science uh, who is speaking about who God is. And I could talk about other people in that period, such as Robert Boyle, the founder of the Royal Society. Uh, He learned four languages so he could understand the scripture better, uh, so that he could be a better scientist. Uh, He actually did his experiments on a Sunday because he thought they were a form of worship. Uh, And. um, This is what John Wesley said, thinking back to uh, the growth of Methodism. This is what Wesley said about uh, Newton. Uh, The immortal man to whose genius and indefatigable industry philosophy owed its greatest improvements and who carried the lamp of knowledge into paths of knowledge that had been unexplored before was Sir Isaac Newton, whose name was revered and his genius admired even by his warmest adversaries. I wanted to put that up because this is one of the great spiritual leaders of the story of the church affirming very, very strongly the role of a scientist. Difficult to say that science and Christianity are at war when you uh, read a statement like that. But then surely it really got difficult with Darwin. Surely the church wasn't at all sympathetic Uh, to Darwin and what Darwin had to say about uh, the Galapagos tortoises and so on. Surely then the church blew it. I mean this is another story that is told. Uh, Actually uh, it's not the case. Almost everyone within uh, any kind of uh, intellectual circles within the church, Christian believers, had very little problem uh, with what Darwin was saying, in Cambridge, you've got Adam Sedgwick, professor of geology at Cambridge, who was a clergyman. This was often the case in the 19th century. Now, have a look at that. Uh, Darwin the bishop. It's a cartoon uh, from the time of uh, Darwin. It's kind of poking fun in a way. It's uh, saying, there's Darwin the bishop, and people are coming and making, giving homage to Darwin. Any thoughts about who might have produced that uh, cartoon? A lot of people have said, ah, yeah, of course we know who produced that cartoon. These were the superficial Christians who couldn't begin to get their minds around what Darwin was saying, uh, who just made cartoons up about him uh, and uh, uh, had no idea that he was uh, changing the way we would think about science. That's what some people have said. Actually, it was a cartoon produced by a very strong supporter of Darwin who was an agnostic. Uh, called uh, Thomas Huxley. But this is how the myth gets up again. You, know, that you look at something like that and you say, ah, the Christians, aren't they pathetic? All they can do is make a cartoon or two about Darwin. It wasn't from them at all. The Christians took seriously what Darwin was saying and they didn't see it uh, as being in conflict with their faith. And the last person uh, is Michael Faraday. And I mention him uh, partly to say, we have in Cambridge the Faraday Institute which is actually a major centre of investigation of science and faith. And uh, there are enormous numbers of scientists who are Christians. We don't tend to hear so much about them, but that is actually the case. And Faraday himself, back in the 19th century, possibly the leading scientist of his generation, pioneering work in electricity uh, and the concept of electrical fields, was a fully committed Christian who based his faith on The Bible. Perhaps not so well known today. He would have probably had a knighthood, but he didn't believe in the knighthood system. Uh, But he was a a deeply devout and committed Christian. So, if I'm right in my argument, why is it that the picture seems so different today? Why does it seem as if science and faith, uh, from some people's perspective, don't go together? Well, what we have today uh, is what I would call scientism on one side. Uh, And uh, this is well illustrated by a statement I'll quote to you as I finish uh, from one of the new atheists who says, "This we are machines for propagating DNA and the propagation of DNA is a self-sustaining process. It is every living object's sole reason for living. That's it. That's scientism where you reduce life and its meaning to that. And obviously, that's going to be in conflict uh, with a Christian understanding. But sometimes we have bought into the conflict ourselves from the Christian side and made things difficult as well. So, what I want to suggest to you is uh, we don't need to do that, and we shouldn't do that, because the big story is of one in which Christian believers have engaged in the scientific process with a sense of wonder, with a sense of excitement, with a sense of commitment, because this world in which we live is the world that has been given to us by God himself.